Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Jonathan on Money. This is episode number 29. So I have some exciting news this episode, which is that I'm thrilled to share a significant milestone in my journey as a business owner, which is that I want to unveil my new company's name, which is Park Bridge Wealth Management. This is an exciting new era for Shankman Wealth Management. Given the rapid growth of my business, it made sense to rebrand as we enter this next phase of the company. While the name has changed, our commitment to high-quality content, client service, and providing sophisticated advice has not. This is just the beginning of an exciting new chapter. And if you'd like to stay abreast of our latest writings, podcasts, webinars, and educational videos, and much more, be sure to sign up for our monthly newsletter at parkbridgewealth forward slash newsletter. What has stayed the same is that I will spend the last half of this episode, as always, answering listener questions. I'll also share an excellent quote about our own worst enemy and biggest challenge with investing and life as well. And with that, let's jump into this week's talking points. So the past few weeks, I've been pondering what thoughts I can share regarding the horrific Hamas terrorist activities on innocent Israelis and the subsequent war in Gaza. Normally, when there's any type of geopolitical event, I try to be proactive with my clients by emailing them the potential economic and market impact from the event. However, I did not send any such communication this time. It seemed inappropriate to discuss investing when I, like so many of my clients, have family, friends, or business partners in Israel. The concern for their safety was far more pressing than a market update. As I was pondering what message to share here, the gravity of the current situation made me much more philosophical about money and the role it serves in all of our lives. After all, as I say frequently, money is a tool to help us live the life we want. It's not a scorecard where we accumulate as much of it as we can to impress others. When deciding how to use money to best to best live our lives, I often develop an investment policy statement, or IPS, for clients. This helps families define their goals and their purpose for investing. After all, it's impossible to invest prudently without first having a clear purpose of the goals. One ex- exercise that I've used with clients to help them better define their goals is asking them to write their reverse obituary. I've been thinking about this concept frequently in light of recent events. A a reverse obituary helps separate our resume virtues and obituary virtues. Resume virtues are short-term material goals. They may seem important today, but are meaningless when considering the bigger picture. This may include how much money we make, our net worth, the car we drive, the boards we sit on, the honors we receive, the house we live in, and the types of vacations we go on. On the other hand, obituary virtues are character traits that we want others to remember us for when we are gone. In other words, they're characteristics that are actually important. This may include being supportive to your family and friends, charitably inclined, and contributing positively to society at large. It's important It's not uncommon for folks to have little to no overlap between resume virtues and obituary virtues. The reverse obituary exercise facilitates a focus on your core values 
which helps us align those values with your money and daily routine. Over the past few weeks, I've been horrified by all the terrorist attacks, starting with the gruesome massacre on Simplice Torah. The images of death and torture were hard to stomach. However, I was also inspired by the response to these atrocities by so many people around the world. I'm inspired by the soldiers and middle-aged reservists who selflessly jumped into action without hesitation to protect Am Yisrael. I'm inspired by the people all over the world, Jews and non-Jews alike, who are donating time, money, supplies, and food to help defend Israel. I'm inspired by the Jewish communities around the world who immediately set up the Hillam and Torah learning groups to pray for the safe return of the soldiers and the hostages. I'm inspired by the local yeshivot in my community and those around the world who immediately worked with their students to send cards, care packages, and other items to help boost the morale of those on the front line. I'm inspired when I watch the news or scroll through social media and see support of people who are not political or in the media advocating for Israel, humanity, and self-defense, and firmly condemning terrorism. I'm inspired when our family's nanny, who's not Jewish or Israeli, proactively approached us to deduct money from her weekly salary to donate to Israel, and our mailman stopped to speak to me for 10 minutes inquiring about my family in Israel. With all the negativity in the world, I was moved by how, how so many people rose to the occasion with selfless acts of kindness, financial support, tefillot, encouragement, advocacy, and the overall desire to do the right thing. This represents obituary virtues, the type of midot that are important in life for which we all want to be remembered. My message to investors during these difficult times is that money is a powerful tool. It can be used for good, evil, or, or our nourishkeit that just doesn't matter. When deciding how to put your dollars to work, it should be done with intentionality. It should be aligned with your values. It should support what you want written in your own obituary. May Hashem protect our soldiers, emergency responders, the hostage, hostages, and all of Klal Yisrael during these difficult times. And as they say, Am Yisrael Chai. Okay, those are the talking points this week. As a reminder, you can be notified of my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at parkbridgewealth.com forward slash newsletter. We are currently at 7,000 subscribers and growing, so feel free to sign up and invite friends as well. Now for this week's quote, which is from the legendary value investor and Warren Buffett's teacher at Columbia and a fellow Yid, Benjamin Graham, who said, the investor's chief problem and even his worst enemy is likely to be himself. This quote is really the whole essence of behavioral finance. The field of study attempts to explain how decision makers make the financial decisions in real life and why their decisions might not appear to be rational every time and therefore have unpredictable consequences. This is in contrast to many traditional theories, which assumes investors make rational decisions. Over the long term, the markets are fairly predictable. For example, assuming you've invested in a large basket, in a basket of large caps U.S. stocks, it will likely go up somewhere around historical averages over a multi-decade time frame. However, the way investors behave on a day-to-day -day basis is wild and unpredictable. We often make silly and poor decisions, and cost us it costs us a lot of money and may prevent us from achieving our goals. This also reminds us of another quote. So you have a two for one this week. Uh, in the film Creed 1, which is the sequel to the Rocky movie franchise, where Rocky says to Adonis Creed, who he's training, you see this guy staring back at you? That's your toughest opponent. Every time you get into the ring, that's who you're going up against. He was pointing to the mirror of, of Adonis Creed when he said that. 
This is true with investing in life. Often times our biggest obstacle is ourselves. If we don't let our psyche sabotage our strategy and get in the way of our capabilities, most of us will achieve great things. Oftentimes in life and investing, the key is to get out of our own way. Now let's jump into this week's financial questions. If you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at jonathan at parkridgewealth.com, and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. I'm in my early 30s and pretty behind financially. A big reason why is because my parents had an unhealthy relationship with money. For example, they spent too much, never saved, and so forth. My question is, how do I unlearn what my parents taught me and make up for lost time? The first step to stop is to stop blaming your parents. You had ample time to get your act together and still blaming your parents for your financial woes is pathetic. So starting to take some responsibility. Your parents are not responsible for your financial situation in your 30s or your bad attitude that is preventing you from being successful. It's time to grow up. In terms of what you can do, save 15 to 20% of your income and invest it prudently in stocks and bonds. Don't take on debt unless necessary. It's to, unless it's necessary to buy a home and you could afford to do so. Also, accumulate an emergency fund in case you experience an unforeseen expense. This isn't rocket science. It just takes discipline and maybe some more specific recommendations or help with the implementation. If you do need help, hire a financial advisor to assist you. Next question. With interest rates at a multi-decade high, did this impact investment returns? In some areas, it has been impactful, like real estate, hard money loans, and fixed income. Over the short term, certain highly leveraged and high-risk investments like the ones I've mentioned, will undoubtedly default. As Warren Buffett said, only when the tide goes out do you learn who has been swimming naked. Rates going up is the equivalent of the tide going out. Investors will now, now find out which investments were not on solid footing given high rates. In Warren Buffett's example, those are the investments that are swimming naked. Investors will now find out which ones are not on solid footing due to those high rates. Over the long term, rates are less impactful than the short term. Good investments will prevail through various rate cycles. Additionally, as I mentioned in a previous episode, stock market returns are not as correlated to rates compared to other investments. Do you change your mind about any investment strategy? Specifically, you seem to be anti-hedge funds and private equity. Do you think you will ever change your mind? I'm not sure if I'll ever change my mind on hedge funds and private equity. Specifically, I may or may not. I have no personal animosity to either vehicle. Also, I'm definitely not. I'm definitely open to changing ideas. I firmly believe that being open to change is essential in any business, especially investing. If you don't evolve, you become a dinosaur. Just a personal anecdote. Back when I was part of corporate America and between countless meetings with mid-level managers who wasted my time, I sat near a dude on the trading floor who was 30 years my senior. He had been selling bonds to clients for his entire 40-year career, never changed. In the 80s and 90s, this was an attractive strategy more than it was in the 2000s, especially when the rates went down to basically zero. But this dude just never evolved. He also never spoke about financial planning, etc. The solutions were always the same, and he rarely considered any other products or strategies. At the end of the day, he did fine financially. His clients, on the other hand, suffered from not benefiting from someone who was willing to learn, learn and be open-minded enough to evolve his own business. As an, in, as an aside, this man also cursed like a sailor. I enjoyed his profanity-laden rants and immensely. It makes me look back fondly on our time sitting next to one another. There's nothing more invigorating than hearing someone use the F word multiple times in one sentence as a noun, verb, adjective, and adverb, as well as a modifier to add emphasis. But back to me. 
Uh, I change my mind on certain alternatives, passive versus active, the usage of investment products, some types of annuities, fund companies, et cetera. In my 16 plus year career, I've learned a lot and I'm open to new ideas. The reality is that it's become clearer and clearer to me what actually works and what will not work over the long term. Next question. Should I invest in private business started by a friend of a friend? This guy is a serial entrepreneur and has, and has had several successes. Thoughts. Depends how much money you are being asked to invest, but I pass. There is a lot of risk associated with private business. And if you're not in the profession of analyzing companies to invest in, meaning you don't work in private equity or a similar profession, you likely have no idea how to evaluate the opportunity and it's essentially gambling. If this is someone you need to give money to or else it will be frowned upon, for example, like your college roommate, then make sure you only give them what you can lose. Junk bonds offer a high rate of return similar to equities, but are higher on the capital structure than equities. If the company goes belly up, and then I would get paid back sooner. Why not just replace most, replace most of my stock holdings with junk bonds? So they're called junk bonds for a reason. They're risky. That being said, they will not necessarily be able to offer the same returns as equities. They also don't offer the same level of safety as high-grade bonds, which should make up most of your more conservative portion in your portfolio. If you want to carve out a smaller sliver of your portfolio to invest in junk bonds, then call out Kavod, go for it. However, making it the bulk of your portfolio, replacing equities with it is foolish. Don't be a sucker, don't be a sucker and allocate too much of your money to junk. Stay adequately diversified. Next question. My question is essentially about arbitrage. Namely, given the spread between equity premiums and bond yields, why not just arbitrage the opportunity using options? You can even use leverage fairly modestly to enhance your overall annual rate of return. I'd point to the 80s as a real-life example. Seems like the best deal in the market now for high growth. Allow me to answer this question with a profound quote I once heard. And it goes like this. What you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to you. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. For those who are wondering, that was a quote from the classic Adam, Famler, Adam Sandler film, Billy Madison, and I think that adequately answers this question. Next question. My advisor has no opinion on where the markets are headed. Should this concern me? Because it does. It should not concern you, assuming he's doing everything else right. Being bullish or bearish matters less than having a process to achieve your goals. Your personal financial circumstances should dictate how your investments, how, how your investment uh, far more than what you think will happen in the markets. You don't need to have an opinion on whether markets are going higher or lower in the short run. It's really meaningless. I understand that many people in my industry make lots of money talking about where the markets are headed. Are headed. But here's a little secret. No one has any clue where the market is headed in the short term. Unless your financial advisor or chief market strategist is Moshe Rabbeinu, who had Navua, then your guess is as good as your advisor's, and his guess is as good as the chief economist of a major investment bank making $10 million a year. No one has any idea where the market is going in the, in the near term. Frankly, someone who is very confident about their market predictions should be a red flag. Saying you have no clue is far more honest and sensible answer. Pretending that you know what what the market will do in the short term either means you don't understand how the market works or you're a liar. Neither is good for business. What do you think is the best part of being a billionaire? Well, as a billionaire myself, I can talk from personal experience. Just joking. I have a long way to get there, but I'm not 
sure that that is a goal that I or anyone else should actually have. But in all seriousness, the biggest perk of being a billionaire is the ability to weaponize the legal system to get what you want. As anyone with legal experience can tell you, the folks with the most money, <clears throat> whether they're corporations, government entities, or very wealthy people, can wear down the other party with legal fees to get what they want, whatever that may be. There will be a small temporary period of satisfaction in that victory. After that spike in temporary happiness, it will fade and things will be back to normal. Whatever normal is for a billionaire, imagine it's going to balls, the opera, going to your club, talking in a mid-Atlantic accent, and investing in venture capital that will likely implode. The second benefit is for those billionaires who give to charity because they genuinely care about lifting up those who are less financially fortunate. Giving to the arts, on the other hand, New York City-based museums or Ivy League institutions already have tons of donors. Um, giving to them is more about looking important to your circle of friends and less about helping people. This won't bring much joy. However, giving to causes that lift people up can be immensely rewarding if done for the right reasons. Beyond those two perks, the reality, reality is after a certain level of wealth, which is actually much lower than most people think, having more money brings no more joy or happiness. In fact, I'll be bold enough to say that it is just more Soros. I've seen it many times, fighting within the family, legal fees, being harassed by nonprofits, etc. Remember, you can't buy true happiness or contentment. How should I invest the $1 million in cash in today's market? Where should I put the money to work? So you're looking for a hot stock ticket, hot investment tip. I didn't realize my podcast was a virtual kiddish club where you get, get hot stock tips, but I don't want to let you down. So here are some ways of thinking about it. First, you're thinking about it wrong. Don't worry about the investment that is most attractive today. No one knows what will offer the best future return. Rather, think about what your goals are, how much risk you can stomach, and a game plan to achieve it. That will influence how to allocate your funds. Second, there are a lot of things that do look attractive now, but how you decide to invest your funds depends on your goals. For folks who need the cash in a couple of years, invest in a money market account earning around 5% and call it a day. Also, while the S&P 500 is up, this return has been driven by just a few stocks, meaning there are plenty of other stocks and areas of the global market that got crushed. Look for areas that got hammered and have a good investment thesis and put some funds in there. Also, investing in bonds look quite attractive as of right now. You've got attractive yields and they're trading at a discount. This is very appealing. Next question. With mortgage rates at a 30 of on a 30-year fixed rate at around 8%, do you think housing prices in from communities will drop? Yes, but not by much as other parts of the country and not for long given the demand of housing from communities. Remember, for every person looking to buy a house with a mortgage, there's always someone else out there whose tati or schwer has enough money to buy the house for a junior in cash. It's just the way of the world. As I tell folks in the market to buy a home, buy a home when one, you find a community you want to live in, two, you find a house in said community you are satisfied with, not that you fall in love with, falling in love's for Hollywood, not for the real world. And three, you can avoid the house, you could afford the house that you that you're satisfied with. And finally, four, you plan on staying in the home for at least five years. Regardless of where rates are, this should be your framework for buying a house. And I wish you much mazel in your search. Okay, that's it for financial questions this week. Feel free to email me with any questions you have, and I might answer them in a future episode. You can reach me at Jonathan at ParkBridgeWealth.com. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. 
And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on, Shank on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.